Hello, folks. This is Sly James again. We're doing yet another episode of No Filter Media. I am here with my good friend, Joni Wickham. Uh, We are co-founders of Wickham James Strategies and Solutions. I'm an author of a couple of different books. Uh, One we'll talk about a little bit today, A Passion for Purpose, and also The Opportunity Agenda. Um, And we'll get into some of the things that uh, uh, in the book and uh, uh, some of the things that will tell you a little bit about who I am and what we're doing. But uh, I do want to let you know that No Filter Media is no holes barred, and we're here to bring you hopefully lively conversation about a number of different topics. Joni? Hey there, everybody. I'm Joni Wickham, co-founder of Wickham James Strategies and Solutions, author of The Thin Line Between Cupcake and Bitch, which... Sly and my husband, Fred, both tell me that line's getting thinner and thinner. Uh, Sly's former chief of staff and current wrangler of a second grader and a couple of really cute, sweet, and stinky fur babies. You can check out our firm's website at wickhamjames.com to see how we can serve you and to book us for speaking engagements. And as Sly mentioned, we're going to do something um, just a little different. Uh, This week, we are going to have a conversation, just he and I. We'll see how many F-bombs we drop and um, how many people we um, uh, make fun of and how many HR violations (laughs) the two of us can make. But we're going to specifically talk about his book, The Passion for Purpose, A Passion for Purpose. There we go. There it is. Yep, there it is. Um, And I really loved... um, reading this book way back when you were writing this end of 2018, 2019. Is that, am I getting my chronology right? Uh, yeah. It, well, yeah. Early 2019, I think it was released in July or so of that yeah. year. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's about two years old now yeah. in a few months. Yeah. And I mean, of course, all the city stuff I was kind of there for. So yeah. I kind of knew, I yeah. knew that I knew, I knew all that stuff, but I didn't know all of the stuff that you wrote about your childhood and I'm betting um, most of our listeners and most Kansas Cityans and most of our clients and most of our friends and family probably don't either. And the thing that I think really um, started the book off to be really interesting and to give everybody kind of a glimpse into your life was the discussion about how you left home as a teenager and never went back. And I remember when when Fred first read the book, he was just really blown away um, at the, uh, for lack of a better term, balls that it took to do something like that. Um, So tell the listeners kind of about that story, and then what impact did that have on your relationship with your family? Oh, wow. Well, I think I have to go back a little bit earlier than that because the the leaving home doesn't really fall into the proper context unless you know about all the things that led up to it. First of all, I was not raised in a situation where I had really very close contact with my mother or my father um, uh, up until the age of nine. Um, prior to my earliest memories are of living with a woman, Alice Lewis, on Armstrong in Kansas City, Kansas. And uh, we always referred to her as uh, like an aunt or something, but she really wasn't. She was a person that my father had enlisted to take care of me and my brother, LaFrance, uh, while we were growing up because he had uh, um, he was out working, boxing, doing his thing. 
and um, my mother really wasn't in the picture. Um, so at the age of nine, uh, he decided to remarry. Prior to that time, LaFrance and I had kind of been best buds. Uh, you know, uh, I was the oldest, older of the two, and in in I don't know if most people understand the dynamics of being raised in a black family, but there's a lot of responsibility passed down from parents to the oldest to take care of the younger children. And I took on that responsibility. So I saw him as my responsibility and tried to keep him on the straight and narrow while trying to keep myself on the straight and narrow. But at the age of nine or so, my father decided to remarry and we were somewhat unceremoniously whisked away from what we believed was home to a new home with a relative stranger, um, my stepmother. Um, and it was um, not necessarily the smoothest of transitions, particularly in the early stages. The good news was is that they were very, very focused on providing us with the best education that they could, and they worked their butts off to do it. But I think that that whole experience accounts for some of my basic flaws. Um, one of the things I've always liked about you, Joni, is you stay in touch with people from God knows when and have all these stories. I've never really done that. And I've never done that to some extent because I never had senses of attachment. Um, I was attached to my brothers um, because those are the ones I spent time with. Those are the ones I felt I was responsible for. I didn't necessarily feel that I had huge attachments to the parental units in whatever form or shape they came to. Um, so we lived in a little bungalow over in Montgomery. Very interesting times. There were three of us in a in one bedroom, and we had some very crazy times. There are three boys in one bedroom in a two bedroom bungalow, and. Um, uh, I started uh, when I when I left grade school and went to Bishop Hogan High School, an all white high school. I got involved with a band. Uh, the band became the focal point of my entire life. And your family. I'm sorry. And your family, really. And, and in fact, my family. They yeah. and guys that I still see today. Had lunch with them a couple of days, a couple of weeks ago, but they became the entire focal point. And the good news was, is that we were good. So we were getting a lot of strokes and doing some very interesting things. And it was also a very interesting time in the sixties, 65 to 69, Vietnam was raging, civil rights was raging, sexual revolution, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby, all sorts of different things going on. So I became very immersed in that. And because of that became somewhat independent in the way, not only I lived, but in the way that I thought. So the real conflict showed up when, uh, and I really did, really did enjoy spending time with my father, but it was generally in a work setting because he worked all the time. He worked as a chef at the Black Angus restaurant. He'd get off about one o'clock in the morning. Then he'd go clean buildings, trying to build a janitorial service until three, four, five o'clock in the morning, come home, sleep during the day, get back and rinse and repeat. So we didn't see him much. So we started going to work with him. And that was how we started hanging out with him on the weekends and things like that when we weren't playing ball, that type of thing. So we had this big family outing plan to go to a Chiefs game. And 
anybody who knows me knows that I am about as fanatical about the Chiefs as anybody could be. I can completely um, relate to that, yes. <laughs> and um, right as we were about to leave, I got a call from my from our band leader, Chris, who said that our agent had called and said that we had an opportunity to audition to open uh, up for the Jefferson Airplane on their concert tour here in Kansas City. And I said, that's, you know, I was excited about that. I said, when? And he said, in a couple hours. And I said, well, I can't do it. I, I'm, I'm supposed to go to this football game. He says, well, we can't do it without you because you're the lead singer. So what are you going to do? So I went and told my father he was having none of it. And so I had a choice to make right there. Where was I going to uh, show my loyalty? To my father going to a football game or to my band mates um, for an audition, the audition of our band life, so to speak? So I gave him the old okie doke as we were going out to the car. We had argued a bit. He said, you're not going. You're going to the game. I said, well, okay, fine. So halfway out to the car, I said, I forgot something. Went back into the house, uh, grabbed my sweatshirt, my school books, whatever I could carry, went out the back door, went over the fence, and I was gone. And I did not uh, I did not have a direct conversation with my mother uh, or my father for five years. Um I spent time couch surfing. I spent some time sleeping on the steps of the Nelson Atkins Art Gallery. I spent some time doing a lot of different stuff. Ultimately, the band made money, and I was able to get an apartment and then actually made enough money while I was a senior in high school that I rented a house. And God only knows how they somebody let me rent a house at that age, but I rented an entire house at 39th and Warwick and lived there by myself. And then got married, uh, kind of a shotgun wedding and went into the Marine Corps in 71. But that, so I, I, I tend, when I look back, I tend to look at these milestones, these posts, these benchmarks moving, uh, kind of being moved to a different world at the age of nine. Then seven years later, uh, leaving home. And then several years after that, uh, getting having a child and then going into the Marine Corps. All those things shaped who I am and were very important. That was, um, it, it was kind of scary, but it was also kind of exciting to leave home at that age. One of the first things I did was, is that one thing I really do like about my, my mother was that she had us uh, save money. So whenever we had money, she insisted that we save money. So I had money in the bank. First thing I did, I left on a Sunday, um, Monday morning, I was there when the bank opened. I drew out all my money because I knew if I didn't, she would. And I went and paid my tuition at school and kept what was left in my pocket to try to get buy on, figuring I'd make enough to pay the next semester's tuition between now and then. And the rest is history. Okay, so there's a lot packed in that. Um, I feel like this could be a Hollywood movie, and I know that your assumption is that Denzel would, would play you if that ever came to that. Um, You'd but, be trying for that role. <laughs> um, tell Leisha that I'm sure Angelina Jolie would, would play her. Yeah, um, sure. Yes. So two things really resonated with me. When I first read this story way back when, and as you were talking now, you have a tremendous sense of duty to whatever you're doing. 
Um, I remember when we were in the mayor's office and we were trying to get you not to jam pack your schedule every damn day. You had this tremendous sense of duty that, you know, if there was a organization that wanted you to go to their event, you would do it. And my God, if a child was involved, you would be there at eight o'clock in the morning if you needed to, because you have this tremendous sense of duty. And I can see that all the way back to your band. Like that's yeah. one of the things that really drove that decision for you to leave home was that sense of duty that you have. And we'll get to your um, time in the Marines in a minute. Um, and then also resiliency. Um, one of the things that I have learned about you over the years, and this is probably why we get along so well, one of the many reasons why we get along so well, is resiliency. Um, you don't have time for balling up in a corner in the fetal position when things are difficult or when things don't go as planned. And without that sense of duty and without that resiliency skill that I think you always have, it, it sounds like, um, I don't, I don't know where you might have ended up or what you might have been doing. Um, so what do you think about that sense of duty and resiliency? I think my sense of duty came from being the older of two boys without really having a family in the way that people think of family. We had a family, but it really, it wasn't our family. It was kind of like, you know, it, you, you're sent away during the summer to go live with relatives someplace else. And you love the relatives and everything's cool and you like their kids and you consider them family, you love them and all that, but it's not your home. Uh -huh. And that's how I grew up for nine years. So as far as I was concerned, the person that I had responsibility for was my brother. And I took that seriously. Um, and that resulted in a lot of times me getting punished for things that he did, but rather than me, throw him under the bus, I'd take it and he'd kind of sit there. But I've always thought about duty because I, I believe that we all have a duty to each other, frankly. Um, you know, that sounds a little corny, but I've never understood how we could think that we're living on the same planet and have no relationship to everybody else on that planet. I, it, it, it reminds me of that movie, The Butterfly Effect where just one thing was changed in a person's life and how and the repercussions that it had throughout not only his life, but other people's lives. So the sense of duty was built in from a very, very early stage. And you're right, it was there. And it was also a sense of duty that forced me into making choices between people. Who did I feel the greater sense of duty to at one time? And I often look at that. I do it when I go to a restaurant. You know, it's like, well, you know, I can have uh, I can have the uh, Vichy Chois or I can have a steak. What the hell is Vichy Chois? It's a fish soup. Oh, great. Which, I, which okay. I don't particularly care for, but <laughs> I needed something that I wouldn't make at home. Okay, got it. So, so I wouldn't make that at home, so I'd have it at the restaurant because I could always get a steak. And so... I can always go to a football game, but I was never going to have another opportunity with that band to audition for Jefferson Airplane. And not only that, if I didn't do that, I was letting five other guys down and robbing them of an opportunity they had. So it was an easy call, but it was a difficult existence for a while thereafter. I learned because I was tested that if you simply showed up the next step, the next day, that you would make it through. I learned that at a very early age because there was never a time when I thought I can't 
do this. There was usually, I have to do this. Uh I have to do this. If I don't do it, then what's going to happen? And the, the, uh, the chances of something negative happening if I didn't do something were far greater than the chances of something negative happening if I did. So I learned how to do things even though I didn't like them, even though they were painful sometimes, uh, either physically or emotionally, because it was simply a matter of survival. And once you understand that you can really overcome just about anything that you set your mind to, then you're not afraid to set your mind on doing anything. And with regards to the things in the office, yeah, I mean, you also have to put that in the context of we had a mayor that I succeeded that didn't do anything. Right. And and I've always thought that you can't possibly lead people from your basement. You yeah. have to be out there. And, and, I, I developed this thing over a period of time where I thought, and I told Larissa, our scheduler once, I said, you know, I said, no, I, I, I don't think I'll do that one. I said, because, you know, people are so used to seeing me everywhere that if I don't show up for this, they'll just think I'm someplace else. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's and, true. And, but the point of it is, is that I knew we had a maximum of eight years. If I didn't take advantage of every opportunity to go out and, and, do things with the people in this city that I could, then I was missing out and, and robbing them of eight years of, of our time in office. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Um, so another theme that you wrote about in the book more than once was your smart assness. <laughs> um, so this, something, this is something else that didn't just start when you became mayor. Um, and it sounds like you were a bit of a smart ass slash class clown when you were in school. So tell us Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. I, I used to get into trouble all the time in school. But it was really those things where it was like I get in trouble, but I was never really in really huge trouble because they all like me. So <laughs> I would get in trouble, but it was like, all right, we're going to expel you or we're going to suspend you for a few days. But you know, we're going to send your homework and make sure you stay up on your homework so you can come back, yada, yada, yada. But we have to do something because you did something weird. Probably the main thing, and Chip reminds me of this all the time, was we performed at a PTA meeting for our, our parents in a play, our class, the eighth grade class. And Sister Mary Lucy, who was uh, who we all thought was a babe under her habit. Um, oh, God, you're going to hell. <laughs> Will she be there? (laughs) Anyway, continue. (laughs) Anyhow, she came in and was said, I'm I'm so proud of the way that you guys performed last night. You were excellent. Everybody's talking about it, yada, yada, yada. I I really would like to do something special and maybe go get ice cream, but I I can't leave you here alone. You know, so, so we'll have to do that some other time. I said, well, you can leave us here alone. She says, no, if I left you here alone, you guys would act up. I said, I got the perfect solution. Just turn on the tape recorder, and you'll know if we act up while you're gone. And she thought, oh, that's a good idea. So off she goes to the store, and I'd say five minutes into it, I started like, why is everything so quiet? And then that developed into throwing pencils up into the ceiling, into the to the ceiling and seeing if they would stick and then all sorts of hell broke out. And so then we just started just getting totally rowdy. So 
somehow or another, I wound up in the coat closet. We had these folding doors that you could go in the coat closet. And and, uh, she came back and she saw the pencils falling off out of the ceiling and she heard another tape recorder and heard what was going on. And she looked around. She says, where is Mr. James? And I jumped out of your coat closet and went, ta-da. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I can see you doing that. I can totally see you doing that. So she suspended me and four, uh, three others, Jay and Edgar and Chip. And uh, so yet again, I had a brilliant idea. And they, we were all saying, oh, our parents are going to kill us. Okay. I said, well, no, they won't. I said, here's how we'll do it. We'll each go to everybody's house and we'll explain what happened. And, and it'll, you know, they won't kill you while we're all there. So we go to Jay's house and his parents are pissed. And uh, so we said, come on, Jay. They said, no, you're staying here. You're grounded. Okay. So Jay's off. They go to Edgar's house and his parents did the same thing, went to Chip's house, and his parents did the same thing. So I wound up going to my house alone. How'd that turn out? Not well. <laughs> not well. Uh, they were not uh, opposed to corporal punishment. And um, uh, there was, uh, when when the words you're grounded in our house were uh, said, that meant you had no television. You had no telephone privileges. You could not leave your room unless specified for some things, and that was a two-month grounding, and that was about as painful as it could get. But once again, I found a way, got through it, still alive, still kicking. I read a bunch of books. So how did you take this um, class clown streak that you have what did you do to suppress that when you were in the Marines? Because they don't have any time for that shit there. Oh, you didn't have any choice there. I mean, it was kind of like, if you want to you want to do that, you're a friggin' idiot. I mean, yeah. uh, there's nothing like the threat of imminent pain to make you toe the line. And not only that, here's where a duty thing comes in again. In the Marine Corps, we were taught very early on, first night we were there, one person screws up, you're all getting punched, Okay. So the first night we were there, we had some idiot who insisted on smoking, although he was told, we were all told, no smoking. Uh, there would be no smoking. The smoking lamp is out. And this guy is sneaking a cigarette over in the corner of the Quonset hut, and the DI comes in, smells the smoke. Everybody up, and we're all up, out on the road, out on the road. And we started running, and we ran until we puked in the middle of the night. And so when we got back, that guy who was doing the smoking got a very rude reception from the rest of us. And we found out a long time ago that if you want to be a maverick and get everybody else in the jam, then it was going to cost you in some way, shape, and or form. So you towed the line. And they did that purposely because at that time with Vietnam, they understood the dynamics of working as a unit. And, and everybody towing the line and following the same rules because basically what he said was if you were out in the ville, out in, out in the jungle, and somebody was smoking when they weren't supposed to and the enemy smelled it, you're all dead. Oh, okay. Well, it kind of drives it home. Yeah, yeah, and they weren't kidding. It was no, the they were not kidding. Yeah. Uh, they, they 
they wore T-shirts that we were not allowed to wear. First of all, first of all, we were never called our own name. Uh, there was private bastard eyes. There was private bitch lips. There was private mf'er. Um, there was private shithead. There was private dumb fuck. But you were never called your own name until you graduated and you became Private James. And that's what we were all striving for was to actually get our own name and to be called a Marine for the first time. But they instilled in you the idea that you rose, you fell, you lived and you died as a unit. And the great thing about that was is that all those differences about people that a lot of people seize up on, that shit didn't mean anything then because I didn't care what color you were. I really didn't. If we were going to be out in in Vietnam together in the same unit, I could give a shit about your color. I did care a hell, hell of a lot about whether or not you knew what you were doing and you could shoot and you would cover my ass. That's what we cared about. And so that sense of duty, that sense of loyalty, that esprit de corps, that survival instinct all kicked in at the same time. And it was one of it. It was one of those life changing things where, again, you learn that if you can survive, that if you just keep coming forward and doing the right thing, you would survive. That really had a major impact on me. Uh, as a matter of fact, we used to say that once we finished boot camp, we could stand on our head for a year if we had to. We could run through a brick wall if we had to because that's how you felt. Yeah, it was that intense that you felt like if you actually made it through it, then everything else was gravy. Look, I don't know if you've ever been choked out until you passed out. No, thankfully, I have not had that experience. Well, we had that experience on a fairly regular basis, and we had to learn how to choke out our partner three different ways, with your hands, with a fixed object, and with a flexible object. And you had to choke them until they passed out. And you had to be choked out until you passed out. There's nothing like that kind of fear that makes you think differently. Yeah. But they trained us for war. And they trained us to come home from war. And having spent time with the Army units that I was stationed with for a period of time around that period, that time frame, they didn't receive that same training. And frankly, we all felt a little sorry for them. Um, so moving through the book a little bit more and through your journey, um, I want to talk about a chapter that you wrote about Bill Sanders Jr. and the Michael Keith Samuels case. This is one of my favorite parts of your book. Um, so tell folks about Bill Sanders Jr. And I, you have to tell the story about when he walked you around, um, the law firm the first time and then dig into, um, that, that court case. Well, I worked directly for Bill Sanders Jr., but my senior, the senior leader of the firm was Bill Sanders Sr. And I interviewed, um, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer because I thought that was where the constitutional issues were. And in fact, I had applied to Georgetown Law School's criminal LLM program and never showed up because I knew I'd have to take the Washington bar and uh, the DC bar and I didn't want to. But um, I was talked out of it because the dean of students there, Robert Jackson, who had also been my dean of students at Rockers when I was there, uh, said, uh, uh, we need to test the theory because law firms are saying they won't hire women or minority students unless they're, quote, qualified. And they never seem to find any who are qualified. You have the highest GPA of any minority student in the law school. 
Um, so we signed you up for some interviews to see what happens. And I was a little bit pissed, but not too pissed. So I had interviews in Minneapolis and Chicago and St. Louis and Kansas City. And when I got to Kansas City, um, I interviewed with Tom Wagstaff, good guy. And um, he called me up after the interview and said, we'd like to offer you a job. And I said, okay, I accept. He said, whoa, 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 nobody does that. You know, do you, don't you want to think about it? I said, no, I thought about it. I, I accept. Well, you really probably shouldn't until you meet Bill Sanders. I said, well, he wasn't there. He said, yeah, he's in Minneapolis. He said, where you are trying a lawsuit. And I said, well, I'm not going to go bother the man while he's in the middle of a trial and do an interview. I said, I'll see him when I come home. I accept the job and I'll be home for the holidays and I'll stop in then. So I stopped in and I saw Bill Sanders. Great old guy. Bill Sanders, senior, one of the most brilliant individuals I've ever met. Uh, Did not graduate from law school, the legend has it, because he was in World War II. Um, And because he didn't graduate from law school, nobody hung their law school diplomas on their walls because he said, I don't want people walking into this law firm and thinking that if they walk into one office and there's a Harvard diploma hanging there, that uh, they're a better lawyer than if they walk into the next office and there's a UMKC diploma hanging there. So no, no diplomas. So I interviewed with Bill. We had a very, very long conversation. He says, I know exactly what you're going to do. I'm going to put you in my son's trial team so that you can try cases, yada, yada, yada. And then he took me out of his office, his corner office, and he said, come on, I'm going to introduce you to people in the firm. He took me to every single office, every single secretarial unit, the word processing unit, every place in that office where there was a person and introduced me to every single person there personally. This is the senior partner of one of the 10 largest firms in the city. I was impressed by that. So we get back to his office. He says, look, I'm going to tell you right now. If anybody gives you any trouble because you're black, you let me know and they're fired. And I said, well, thanks, boss, but I've been black a while. I think I can handle it. Um, and that was our first conversation. And after that, he picked me for various little projects he had. We had some tremendous things. I remember sitting in the break room one night and he was trying a case and he said, hey, do black people and Mexican people get along? And I said, well, I don't know. Why don't you go ask some? <laughs> How the hell am I supposed to answer that? I said, why? He says, well, I've got this case and there's a a Mexican kid on the other side. And I was thinking about having you sit second chair. And I said, oh, so so you want you want you want some color at your table so it doesn't look so bad uh, compared to the other guys. I said, no, I I don't do that. I said, I I don't do that. I'm not going to be your token. I'm not going to be your window dressing. Not going to do it. And he says, well, he said, well, I need you to do this. And, you know, I said, well, if I'm going to go there, I'm not going to sit there. I'm going to do something in this case. So he said, OK, so we go to trial and I know what the case is about, but I haven't this is my one of my first things. I've never done this. And he says, OK, uh, we third or fourth day, he says, you take that witness up there. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean? He says, Go question that witness. I said, I'm not prepared to do that. He says, well, you better learn because he's up there now. You need to go question him. All right, fine. So I went up and questioned the witness. And then he had worked it out with the judge so that when I screwed up, he could take over. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's, that's Bill Sanders. And then I got into this case. I was with him at another trial, a big cattle 
thing, a case that was based in Iowa or Nebraska or somewhere. I was like fourth chair in this case. Um, and Penny Johnson was his second chair. And I was supposed to be responsible for these big banker's boxes of exhibits. So I, I was doing that. And the lawyer on the other side wanted an exhibit. I couldn't find it. And I'm searching. And um, the lawyer gets kind of pissy with me. He says, I said I wanted an exhibit. What the hell's taking so long? Justice, first of all, watch your language. And uh, uh, Mr. James, can you find the exhibit? I said, Judge, I'm, I'm, I'm looking. And so he turns around again and says, where's my exhibit? I said, just hold your horses. Bad idea. So ultimately get the exhibit. The judge then that night says, Mr. James, I'd like to see you in chambers. And I said, oh, crap. All right. So I go in and I said, okay, I'm sorry, Judge. I shouldn't have said that. He says, I don't care about that. He's an ass. Um, I want to appoint you to represent a man in a criminal case. Judge, I don't know anything about criminal cases. I don't know that much about civil. He says, well, I need you to do it. I said, why? He said, well, this individual is African-American, and he refuses to work with any lawyers who aren't African-American. I said, well, he's I said, I don't, I don't understand that. There's other people who can do that that know something about criminal law. He says, he's fired every lawyer that we've tried to appoint. So I'm appointing you, and that's it. I said, okay, fine. So I go to meet my client, who is a young man by the name of Michael Keith Samuels, one of the saddest situations I've said. Michael Keith Samuels is a diagnosed, recurring, paranoid schizophrenic who has been in and out of mental institutions for all of his life. How old was he? I don't remember. Michael was probably about 26 or 27 at that time, 28 maybe. He lived with his mother in kind of a rundown house on the east side. And the things that had happened was that he had had a, 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 he had had a break. He covered the inside of his house with tinfoil, moved his mother to a vacant house across the street because he thought that the Russians were listening to his thoughts. And in the process of sorting out through all of that, he wrote a letter to Ronald Reagan. The letter read, to Ronald Reagan and all other presidents at who, to Ronald Reagan and all other honkies who are president of the land you stole from the Indians, stop fucking with me or I will kill you with no clothes on. Word for word. Didn't take long for the Secret Service to come and arrest him. Yeah, I don't imagine Michael had been in jail, unmedicated, for like a year. So I first met him, and the first thing he did was he handed me a stack of papers. I said, what is this? He says, this is my lawsuit. I want to file against the government. And what it was was, I, Michael K. Samuel, sued the American government and all the other honkies for one comma zeros, 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 for like 10 pages of zeros. I said, well, we can't file this, Michael. And he wasn't happy about that. But I knew immediately he was sick. So I filed a motion with the judge. And I said, judge, this man is not competent to stand trial. He cannot possibly help with his defense. So I'm I'm filing a motion to have him declared incompetent and unable to stand trial. He took it under advisement, ruled against me and says, well, I'm sending him to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, where they will medicate him, and on medication, he'll be able to stand trial. And I said, Judge, 
this guy is a paranoid schizophrenic. He's got a stack of medical records a foot tall. I'll bring in his doctors and they can tell you that he is not competent to stand trial. Nope, this we're doing it my way. So off to Springfield, Missouri, one of my all-time favorite places for diversity. Um, the only thing diverse in Springfield that I could see was the number of different types of Chinese restaurants they had. But anyhow, we go to trial in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, we have a all-white jury. It is the most hostile environment I've been in, and I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, so I did everything twice. And I remember Stan and Michael would come into court. They bring him into court, and he was so medicated that he would drool. He would nod off to sleep. I'd ask him a question, and, and he'd just kind of look at me with glazed eyes. And I, again, told the judge, judge, look at him. He cannot stand trial. Right. He has to, in order to stand trial, he has to be able to help counsel. This guy cannot help me because he is he doesn't know where the hell he is. And this is a white judge, white jury. White judge, white jury in Springfield, Missouri. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I'm the only black person there. Um, so we go to trial, and I remember I was so wired. I stayed up all night long preparing for the government's key witness. And I got him on the stand, and I thought I had him, and this was before I knew the one thing that Bill Sanders told me or taught me later. He says, you never try to kill a witness on the stand unless you see the jury doing this with their thumbs down, giving you the signal to go ahead. Well, I didn't get that signal. So I'm tearing into this guy because I think he's a lying sack of shit. But at any rate, I said, so how are you telling me, sir, that this man sitting right over there drooling, can't stay awake, could possibly in those mental states form the requisite mental state to commit a crime. How can you say that? Well, Mr. James, all I can say is the dog can have fleas and ticks at the same time. And I said, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) Just because he's incompetent don't mean he's not a criminal. I said, oh, shit. So I lost him. The judge had to clear the courtroom. But at any rate, so we come to the end of the case, and uh, the judge instructs the jury and sends them off to deliberate and pick a foreman. Person stands up, and the jury says, judge, do we need to deliberate? We already know what we want to do. And I said, oh, this ain't good. He says, yes, you must deliberate, and you shouldn't know what you want to do. You're there to review the evidence. You were told to keep an open mind. You all said you could, yada, yada, yada. So they were up in the jury room for about 15 minutes, came down guilty. Of course. Of course. So Michael goes off to federal prison. I file an appeal with the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The three-judge panels agreed with me and said he never should have been tried, and they vacated the sentence. All right? Um, one of the really conservative racist judges on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal filed his own motion for the very first time ever. And a judge filed a motion to have the case reheard in bank so that he could hear it and other judges could hear it so that they could reverse the three-judge panel. Three-judge panel denied that. Otherwise, we would have been doing this again. So Michael goes to prison. About six, eight months later, I get a call from the federal assistant attorney general, good guy, knew what the situation was and agreed with me on a lot of stuff. Says, well, I got good news and bad news about Michael. I said, okay, what's the good news? Well, the good news is um, 
we were going to let him out. Okay. So all right, what's the bad news? Uh, he was out. What's the bad news? Well, he apparently went to the HUD office, took him a bunch of crude pictures he had drawn while he was in prison of houses and told them that he wanted them to build the houses in his neighborhood. And they said, we can't do that. And he's threatened to blow the building up. So now he's back in jail. Oh dear. So I, that's Michael Key Samuels. They put him in a halfway house um, for mentally disturbed people accused of crimes. And he called me up once a month or so, Mr. James, can you send me $20? What do you need $20 for, Michael? Well, I don't have no cigarettes, and I was thinking about getting a bus ticket to come see, come see my brother. I said, well, you ain't going to be able to get a bus ticket, but I'll send you the 20 bucks. So I'd send him 20 bucks a month for a while, and ultimately we just kind of lost touch with each other. But what an interesting character and what an interesting story. It was one of those things where – you know, one of the things, one of the things that I had hoped when I entered the practice of law was that I would be able to do things that really, really captured the reason why I wanted to be a lawyer, where you had those meaty issues that really changed lives or that were really important to people's lives. That was one of those times when it was. Um, it was one of those things that made me glad that I was a lawyer and sad that I was a lawyer at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that particularly with everything that he was um, involved in and dealing with. Well, you know, the sad thing about it was, was, is that you didn't have to be a genius to read that letter and look at it in the scrawl with the misshapen letters and the bad spelling and the capitals in the wrong places and the written all over a sheet of paper with bad handwriting to say, this guy ain't right. I mean, seriously, if they thought that he was seriously a threat to Ronald Reagan, uh, then they were dumber than he was. (laughs) But they did it anyhow, and they locked him up, and nobody really cared about it. That man sat in jail without being medicated for a year, firing lawyers right and left, and nobody thought to even check on whether or not he needed medication. It was the saddest thing. It was one of those things that made me really dislike the criminal justice system. Yeah, because when you see it work up close, sometimes it's kind of like if you go to a packing house and you watch what they do to animals in order to make the hamburgers you eat at McDonald's. You like the hamburgers, but if you see how they're made, you may quit eating meat. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped eating hot dogs once I went to a pig farm. Yes, I understand. Um, so moving on through your journey, uh, mayor's office. That was a thing. thing. We did. That was a huge thing. It was one of the, it was one of the most interesting, fulfilling periods of my entire life from a professional standpoint. Yeah. Same. Um, Okay. I'm going to ask you the question that people ask me all the time. Do you miss it? No, no, I don't miss the office that much. And the reason is, is that once again, I look at things as mileposts and, and you you can't stay in any place forever. I think if you stay in the office for too long, you start to be corrupted by the office to some extent, or you start to think differently. It's hard to be in office without it affecting you in some way on a fundamental level. It's hard to maintain your total sense of self in an environment that wants you to be everything other than yourself. 
I missed the opportunity to engage on various issues, but I think we solved a lot of that working with you. Um, and I'm not blowing smoke when I say that I don't know what being in that office would have been like if you hadn't been there, because what you were was far beyond your title. Okay. Um, but I was fortunate. You were the top of a pyramid of people who I thought were extraordinary in a lot of different ways. Um, not all of them had your full package. Some of them were brilliant, but their personalities were well, a little shaky. <laughs> we won't name any names. And some of them had great personalities, but couldn't sharpen a pencil without help. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't miss not being in office. Um, I would miss not being in office if it hadn't been for what you and I had created with Wickham James Strategies and Solutions, where we still deal with those issues. Uh, where we still have a, a way to have an impact on things that we believe in. That's what I would have missed. And that's what you and I talked about yeah. was we don't, we're not able to go work for somebody. Um, we're not able to just go and do the same thing day in and day out, one thing after another, which is why I didn't go back to the day-to-day practice of law. We had a taste of what it's like to create, policies that affect people's lives and that those policies are based on facts and data and achieve desirable results. And we want to continue that. We're doing that now. Have we not been able to do that? I would probably say, yes, I miss it, but I'm not, I don't miss it at all. I really don't. When you know that you have to leave in eight years, you get prepared to leave in eight years. So when you walk out the door, you're not saying they're not pulling and pulling you, uh, pushing you out the door. You're walking out and saying it was great eight years. See you later. I'm going to do something else. Yeah, agreed. Um, It definitely was the best part of my career, most impactful um, eight years that I've had in my life. Um, And I learned so much uh, just about getting things done, problem solving, leadership, um, and so much about myself and other yes. people yes. and so much about leadership and a bold vision um, from watching you and, and watching you be you. Um, I had always worked in politics and government and um, didn't really have a clue what I was getting into when I moved to Kansas City to go to local government. But I knew that whatever you were doing, I wanted to be a part of. Um, and so I'm glad we did it. And I'm glad we were able to do it together the whole eight years, too. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I don't know that we would have gotten everything done if we, if we hadn't been doing it together. It is a rare situation where you find someone who fills the gaps in your game and does it in a way that you would be proud of without rancor, without ego, but does it because they believe in the end goal and want to achieve and want to achieve not for their own personal benefit, but for the benefit of the people that we were put there to serve. We did some bold things and we seldom had everybody standing there saying, yeah, let's go do it. we, We had to fight our way through, but we got the right things done for the right reasons, for the right people. And uh, again, nobody goes anywhere 
alone. You know, the old African proverb, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. We went together, we went far, and we went well. And that's one of the proudest things that I can say about uh, about my professional life is, is that we did things that I think people will be able to um, enjoy and benefit from for a very long period of time. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's a great way to wrap this episode. And for folks listening, uh, a lot of those things that we talked about, we got done in the eight years um, that Sly was mayor. He talks about in really interesting um, and funny detail at parts uh, in a passion for purpose, um, which you can find um, links to purchase that on our website, wickhamjames.com backslash books. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Joni. Bye, everybody.